The Trafficked Podcast with Mariana Van Zeller is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. There's a boat that I think might be the people we're meeting. So a few months ago, I was in uh, Mazatlan, Mexico, in Sinaloa, actually. It's a, a nice little beach town full of tourists. There are cruise ships out in the ocean. There are beaches packed with beachgoers. You look at it, and it just looks like a totally normal fishing boat. So my journey actually started about a mile offshore, where there was a boat full of men fishing barrels out of the water. There were about 10 barrels, white barrels, that were thrown out to sea. I'd never seen anything like it. I mean, these barrels had crossed the Pacific Ocean from China on a container ship. And just before the container ship reached the port of Mexico in Mazatlan, they'd been pushed off the side and into the black market. So it has to be really quick, guys. They're saying that they don't feel obviously safe here. Lo sé, lo sé. The barrels were filled with the precursor chemicals needed to make fentanyl which is a synthetic opioid uh, about 100 times more potent than morphine and 50 times stronger than heroin. So I was at the very beginning of the Sinaloa cartel's billion-dollar fentanyl pipeline, a pipeline that moves this deadly drug north into the U.S. and into the bloodstreams okay. of American users. Okay, they say they have to go because there's the Marines all around us and they're worried. I'm Mariana Van Zeller, the host of the National Geographic TV series Trafficked. Each week on the series, I dive into a different black market and meet the people who make their living inside it. But this is a little different. From National Geographic and Muck Media, this is the Trafficked Podcast. Each week, I'll bring you the story of one person who made it big in the black market how they lived the high life, and how it all came crashing down. I've been reporting on the opioid epidemic for more than a decade. Fentanyl is its latest evolution, but I can't help but think about how we got here. It all goes back to prescription opioids, like Oxycontin. The Oxycontin started getting big, which were the 20, 40, 80 milligram. That girl calls me back. Like, hey, it's been a while. You want to get back to work? So she's like, I have the big ones. I'm like, the big ones? She's like, yeah, like the 80s. Now I got a couple other friends that are like, yeah, man, get that. We need those. And I'm like, man, I swear I would never sell one of these models. I've never messed with no Oxycontin. And I took that trip, jumped in that car. I had a bad feeling the entire day. For our first episode of the Trafficked podcast, I want to take people back to the early days of the opioid crisis and to the story of Struggle Jennings. You can't tell the story of country music without mentioning Struggle's grandfather, Texas legend Waylon Jennings. Struggle is now a famous country rapper, but as he searched for his own path in the music industry, he turned to drug trafficking and entered the dark world of opioids. So let's start where it all started for Struggle Jennings in Nashville, Tennessee. Tell me about your grandfather. Uh, yeah, he was, uh, he was probably my biggest inspiration in life. And he was just an outlaw. You know, he did everything his way. He made the music he wanted to make at that time. It wasn't considered country music because it was too rock and roll. And now you think of country music, you think of Waylon Jennings. 
I was the only grandson that lived in town with him. So, you know, I, I, my mom sang back up for years, so I got to go on tour with him. I was at the house on oh, the wow. weekends. How old were you? As early as I can remember. Really? What was that like? I was incredible. You know, being on a tour bus and then going to these different places and standing backstage. And he'd always call me and Shooter, who's my uncle, but we're a year apart, so we kind of grew up like brothers. He'd mm -hmm. always call us out on stage, you know, and introduce us. <laughs> So tell me about your childhood. My mom was, you know, the daughter of Waylon Jennings. My dad was an old West Nashville, just good old boy, hustler. They met at the skating rink, had me. Uh, Waylon helped him get situated, bought him a house right outside of Nashville in Franklin, Tennessee. We lived there till I was about 10. My mom and dad split up when I was four. So I'd go to my dad's on the weekend in West Nashville, a little area called The Nations. Struggle had a good relationship with his parents. They fought, but he looked up to both of them. One day, when he was 10 years old, his family picture shattered. I remember that day like it was yesterday. I was outside playing football. I was 10. And my mom came outside and she was like, hey, your dad's on the phone. And I was like, tell him I'll call him when I get done. I'm playing football. So then I come in that night. I've got a friend over. We're watching TV. And I go to knock on the door to ask my mom if the friend can stay the night. And it's a school night, so I know she's going to say no anyway. But she was like, I, I hear her and they're just sobbing, crying. So I went to my friend. I was like, man, you better leave. Like, something's going on. And the next thing I know, all these cars start pulling up in our driveway. And they came in and sat me down, you know, uh, and was like, your dad's no longer with us. So that's one of those days that I, I can picture Roseanne was on TV. Like, I, I remember what I was watching, you know, to a T, so. And what happened? Uh, so it was a gunshot wound. He was shot with his own gun. It was eventually just reported as a suicide. Nobody thinks it's a suicide, really. There's a lot of things that he, he showed me and taught me at a young age that stuck with me forever. Some of them good, some of them bad. You know, he, he was the one that taught me, you feed your family by any means necessary. And it's okay if you do a little wrong as long as you do it for the right reason, which, you know, of course, led me down the path I went. How do you think your de his death changed you? I lived with that regret for so long, thinking, what if? What if I'd answered that phone? You know, living with, with regret or hatred or any of that changes how you move anyway. You know, it makes that smile a little smaller and uh, dims that light. In that dimmed light, that darkness, Struggle, who was still just a kid, grew up really fast. When was the first time you tried drugs? Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. I was 10 years old. It was right after my dad had died. I don't have to be in school. So the only other kids that weren't in school were the older teenagers that were skipping school. And uh, that's who I started hanging out with. And I can remember the first time, first drug I ever did was weed. Do you remember the first time you sold drugs? Uh, yeah, the, actually the first time that I ever sold drugs, 
Um, I had an older cousin that gave me a quarter pound of weed and showed me how to break it into little $10 baggies, little dime bags. And I went with it in my backpack and walked around the mall all day asking people if they wanted weed. And this is like in 92. So it definitely Wait, was. Wait, how old were you then? 12. <clears throat> wow, you were 12 years old? Yeah. Were you were you afraid? Weren't you afraid that you were going to get caught? I, mean, I didn't. Ha I didn't really have that thing. fear. Like, no. I, by the time I was twelve, I was already in a gang. I was already, you know, starting to sell weed. I was already carrying a pistol. So, by the time I was twelve, I was already thought that I was ten foot tall and bulletproof. I've spoken to a lot of drug traffickers and drug dealers, and a lot of the reasons why they got into that business was because. Um, sort of lack of opportunity and wanted to make money and then really liked the amount of money they were making and the lifestyle. In your case, I think people would question that and think, well, he's the the grandson of Will and Jennings. He comes from a rich family. Why why was he doing that? So why were you? Why did you get into that world? One of the things that contributed to that, where it's a double-edged sword, is when my mom decided that she didn't want no handouts, she was going to make it on her own. We moved to lower income housing based on your income, mostly like apartments right outside the projects or right in the middle of the hood. And so I'm watching her struggle. We none but ramen noodles or some kind of casserole she whips up. And then on the weekends, I'm going to Wayland's house where there's a Cadillac, a Jaguar, Mercedes Benz, you know, uh, a, a maid and a nanny and then i'm going back to my neighborhood who's got the jaguar the cadillac and the bins the drug dealers so straddling that line where i'm seeing what is possible and i'm seeing the glamorous lifestyle but i'm stuck in this environment with my mama and i want that lifestyle for me i want that for my mama i don't want her to struggle so you started with weed, and then how did you graduate from there to other drugs? So the weed thing didn't work out at first. Uh, it worked out for you know a year or so. I got with these guys that I was hanging out with, and they were, you know, robbing people. I was probably 13 at this time. The guy in the passenger seat, you know, all the drug dealers would stand on the side of the street. So he'd be like, "Hey, hey, hey!" And they'd all rush over to the car, and I'd slide that door open. And they throw their drugs in, you know, we pull off. And by, shh, shh, so that listeners can see you're basically pointing a gun at the person. You're, you're basically robbing a drug dealer, which is- Yeah, I'd have a, I'd have a 12 things to do Yeah, world. 13 years old, uh, plaits in my hair, had my hair cornrowed, little white kid <laughs> with a 12 gauge sawed off shotgun, throw, throw it all in his truck. We had been doing that for a while. One day we pulled into a, uh, Vine Hill Projects and this Cadillac pulled over whoop, blocked us off this guy jumped out and was like y'all get out the car y'all been robbing all my little guys get out the car so I got out the car with my little 12 gauge I was the only one that got out of the car six friends in the car and uh what, were they were they just too scared to get out yeah they were too scared to get out and but I didn't I didn't I didn't have fear back then you know and so I hop out and he's like, you're the only one that got out. Come see me. Told me where he lived at. I ended up going over there, and he was the first person. He gave me a quarter ounce of crack. 
showed me how to use scales, taught me how to break it down, told me how much was what, told me what my profit would be. And that led to that whole life. What did Waylon say about the fact that you were dealing drugs when he found out? He was the one that would pick me up from juvenile. Most of the time I would go. Back then, I know he saw a lot of himself in me because I, I was an outlaw. But, you know, I was just, I had, I was caught up in that life. And he always, it's like he had compassion for me, but he was always pretty firm and hard. I remember one of the first times we ever had a conversation about dealing drugs. I pulled up. I had just had Brianna. I was 19. I pull up to his house. My speakers are banging real loud. I got rims on my car. And he's like, hey, he's like, you need to quit what you're doing. I got a friend at the FBI called said they're watching you you need to stop right now so when Waylon said that I was like all right I'm gonna quit but I still got 150 pounds of weed I got to get rid of before I quit you know and that led to my first charge that I went went away and did uh, a year and a half or did a year in jail and then three years community corrections for it When Struggle got out in 2002, he had this dream of making it in the music industry, of essentially following in his grandfather's footsteps. And he tried. He even built up a local fan base of people who were interested in hearing his blend of rap and country music. You know, I went through phases. There were phases where I was focusing on music and I was still hustling, but I wouldn't be hustling as much because I had hope I was gonna make it in the music and then things wouldn't go right with the music. So I'd be like, fuck off the music. This is all I got. And I'd go back to hustling. And that's when I'd get real big. And then, you know, I, I, some tragic shit would happen. And I'd be like, man, I'm going back to the music of this life. And then the music wouldn't work out. You know, I, I just kept dancing. One foot in the studio, one foot in the street. He tried doing odd jobs to support himself, his family, and his music. He got signed to a record label in 2007. But all the while, there's this pull of this new drug, a prescription painkiller called Lortab. First time that I have even heard of Lortabs is right after I had been shot. The doctor prescribed me Lortabs. They weren't big back Just then. Just hydrocodone. It's yeah, hydrocodone. Hydrocodone. Yeah. Struggle told me he'd been shot twice in different altercations related to drug dealing. So back then, the big pills were like ecstasy and... Uh, Xanax or, or uh, Valiums. Like, nobody knew what the hell lower tabs were. Nobody knew what hydrocodone was. Fast forward a few years, they started gaining momentum. I came home from that first bid. This was in the early 2000s. Now, I've reported on prescription drug abuse, and struggle is absolutely correct. Opioids were gaining an enormous momentum at this time. And Tennessee was one of the hot spots for pill trafficking. I had a friend of mine that was like, hey, can you get any lower tabs? And I was like, I don't know. I'll ask around. One of my buddies that I asked was like, oh, yeah, no, I, I know a guy. Opioids, like lots of other drugs, essentially broke out of the lab and onto the streets just as people, often people who'd been prescribed painkillers in the past, got hooked, wanted more, and looked for supplies elsewhere. So the guy comes over and he brings them to me. I sell them. People are like, oh, no, I can get rid of a lot of these. And so I'm buying like, you know, 100, 200 of them at a time for like 
a week, but I'm having to call this girl like 10 times a day. So then finally she was like, look, I'll just bring you a bunch of them. She brought me a suitcase, 10,000 of them in the 500 bottles and the 100 bottles straight from Watson, straight from the pharmacy. How did she get them? I don't know how she got them. Uh, I, I heard rumors. But you would get them from a pharmacy? Well, they, they were actually from the manufacturer. They were in the bottles. They didn't even have script bottles on them yet. They were, and you can't, I don't think a pharmacy even has that many in one pharmacy. So you think she was getting them from the distributor? Probably so. You know, a lot of people would set up them fake pill clinics and shit where they'd have the the fake pain management places. In 2008, I reported on a pain clinic in Florida for a documentary called The Oxycontin Express. This reporting really helped me understand how the black market for pills operated. And the main takeaway was that, at the time, pain clinics had very little oversight. Busts only happened long after a community got hooked on pills. There was one pain clinic bus in Florida, for example, that found that its doctor sold 20 million pills in two years. I came to think of these clinics as drug-dealing operations. I'm Marianna Van Zeller. More after the break. Struggle says he's not exactly sure where his supplier got her loads of pills. She was bringing them by the suitcases. Uh, she'd drop them off on a Sunday, come back and bring me another 10,000 on Sunday. And at the so time... you sell 10,000 pills a week? A week. Yeah. How, uh, much, how much money were you making out of Probably about uh, $2. Uh, $2 a piece. So about 20 grand a week. What were you doing with all that money? Taking care of 10 kids and 20 friends. You know, I never really lived above my means. I'd have nice cars put my cars on rims, systems in the back. You know, we all dress fly. I had a uh, cocaine white charger, Dodge Charger with the matching 22s. I had Did you a, say cocaine white? Yeah, it was pearl white. <laughs> like you, 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 it looks like fish scale when you drive it under the light, it change colors. I had a Tahoe on 26. Do people was, actually call it cocaine white or is that? Yeah, you, that's what we call it. it. That's, and we were, you know, I was riding around banging Yo Gotti, so. Is cocaine everything, cocaine music. Did you have people selling for you? Did you have street dealers selling for you? Yeah, well, that's what I mostly dealt with was dealers. I didn't do a lot of hand-to-hand small stuff. I, I've had moments of my life where I did do that. Uh, but at that point, you're getting 10,000 lower tabs. You're not out there selling five lower tabs to somebody. You're selling 100 or 500 or 1,000 to somebody. Hmm. How, ma- how, much, how many people do you have buying from you at the time or how many drug dealers? Or street dealers, right? There were street dealers, I guess? Yeah, 15, 20 at that time. Wow, that's a lot. You know, we moved past the the hydrocodones and selling weed, coke. Uh, Then that's when the Roxy's came out. The oxycodone, but like the 30 milligram ones. Things seem to be going well for Struggle. He's selling lure tabs and these larger dose oxycodone pills called Roxy's. He's making money, he's got cars, he even has a little time for music. But the thing about opioids is that once you're prescribed them, as Struggle was, they can be tough to wean off. And being around them can sometimes lead to abusing them. And Struggle did. So one of the things you you talk about is you you were addicted to opioids? Yeah, for for a period of time I was. Can you describe to us what was that like? 
started off just popping them, taking one here, one there, you know, and then it get got to the point. Oxys or what were you? No, I was doing taking? just hydrocodones. And Love and it. I and I did the Roxies too, the oxycodone, like the fifteens mm-hmm. or the thirties. I never got into anything bigger than that. I was drinking syrup for a long time, which is codeine. Yeah. Uh so you were doing both at the same time? Oh yeah. I walk around with a Fago bottle with two ounces of codeine and uh, the syrup in it, codeine and promethazine and a pineapple Fago. Wow. <laughs> How does that make you feel? I mean, you feel incredible, you know, unless you take too many and then you nod out and, you know, you got to kind of keep moving on them. Otherwise you That's sit. That's the pills? Yeah. You sit down and you're like, yeah. But that's how I know when people are on. That's how I know when people are on them. They get to dropping their cigarettes in their lap. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But how how much at the peak of your addiction? How many pills were you taking? Probably twenty pills a day. At the peak, Uh, Lortab, hydrocodone, ten milligram. Mm -hmm. Probably at my peak. That's that's a lot. Which is crazy. It's it's a wonder I even have a liver left. How how difficult was it to kick that addiction? With the hydrocodone, we had went a couple of days. Me and my wife were both taking them. We had went a couple of days not being able to find them. So I wake up. I'm super sick. I got like this terrible stomach. You know, feel like I got the flu. Call a friend. I'm like, dude, I got to find something. I feel like shit. He's like, well, I got a few. He brings them over. Soon as he puts them in my hand, I feel better. And I was like, like I ain't even took them yet, and I feel better. Wow, just from holding them. Just from holding. And I was like, these things are controlling my life, my physical, my mental. And so I took the ones that he gave me, I broke them up in pieces, and I just took a little bit at a time. And I went through about three or four days where I had like restless leg, I couldn't sleep at night, my legs were like, you know, crazy. And uh, I winged myself off of them. Struggle knew that the pills were dangerous for himself and for the people around him. Synthetic opioids are responsible for nearly half of all drug overdoses every year. And Struggle saw it firsthand, getting worse and worse. So when, when you started getting your hands on these Roxies and selling them, were you starting to see the changes in your community as well? Did you start seeing people people starting to overdose? Yeah, it started it started to that's when it started really taking off and then the oxycotons came out and or the oxycotons started getting big, which were the 20, 40, 80 milligram. The eighties. Yeah, the 80s. And I had a good friend of mine come home from prison and overdose on an 80 on 80s and die. Struggle takes me back. He remembers that he never wanted to sell those 80 milligram Oxycontins. He deals in lower doses and sticks usually with weed and coke. But he gets a call from his Lortab supplier. That girl calls me back. Like, it's been a while. You want to get back to work? I'm like, yeah, sure. You're like, you know, I'm a hustler, so you going to drop off 10,000 lower tabs. I'm not going to turn them down. We're going we're gonna to get this money. So she's like, well, I don't have those anymore. I have the big ones. I'm like, the big ones? And she's like, yeah, like the 80s. And I'm like, I don't fool with those. Struggle says he got convinced to say yes by his friends, other hustlers. They said nobody wanted weed and coke anymore. 
But they knew people who wanted Oxy badly. I got a couple other friends that are like, yeah, man, get that. We need those. And so I was like, well, how much? It was like $20 a piece. And at this time, they went for 80 $80 a piece. Yeah. So my homies are telling me, they're like, bro, please get those. That'll help us out so much. Like, we'll give you 40 a piece for them. So you're doubling your money. And then, you know, we can sell them for 80 And I'm like, man, I swear I would never sell one of these models. I would never mess with no Oxycontin. But Struggle says yes. He arranged to make a purchase of Oxycontin at a Walmart in Memphis, Tennessee. This was March 31st, 2010. And I took that trip, jumped in that car. And, you know, we were, because of who I was getting my stuff from, um, we had these candles in the house, like the Jesus Malverde candles. Like that was something mandatory by the guys that I was yeah. getting my stuff from. Uh-huh. So Jesus Malverde is the patron saint of Mexican drug cartels. Yeah. And the candle went out. I had a bad feeling. I had a bad feeling the entire day. But I was going through some other stuff, so I wasn't 100% sure where the bad feeling was stemming from. But looking back on it, you know, I definitely knew. So Struggle and two other friends pull into the Walmart parking lot with a whole bunch of money. So I send him in with the money. I'm like, just go walk around Walmart for a minute, man. You know what I mean? Go in How there, much money was it? 100 grand. While one friend is keeping a distance, money in hand, Struggle's supplier gets in the car. She's fidgety, but she was always fidgety because she was like a bodybuilder. So I didn't really catch the vibe like I should have, but I kind of had the radio up and she's talking. I'm in the front seat, she's behind me. Struggle tells his friend to get back in the car and he gets in the back seat. They take out the money. Struggle says he puts 10 stacks on the dash. Then he makes small talk. I'm like, each one of these are 10,000. I'm like, how's your daughter doing? Cause I know she was having problems with her daughter and she's, so she starts telling me about her daughter. And, but she's getting real nervous because he just hopped in the back with her. And she wasn't expecting that. And he's a well-known goon. So she's like, okay, well, I'm going to go get him. And she hops out and strikes off running across the parking lot. I'm like, oh, hit the spot. I throw the money in there because we had the hidden compartments. Like in the dash, I'm sure you've seen those. Being where you've been in the trenches. And they're like, why are you flipping out? I'm like, because, bro, it's, it's a wrap. And they're like, what do you mean? Here comes all the cop cars. So the moment she opened the door and ran out, you knew I knew. It was, I knew what it was. Busted. Yeah. And they pulled up on us, blocked us all in, take the keys out, throw the keys out the window, get out. It turns out Struggle's supplier was wearing a wire, recording their conversation in the car. But because their words were muffled by the car radio, he says police could never prove how much oxy he was actually buying. All they had was me saying the word 10,000. So at $20 a pill, they couldn't charge me with 5,000 pills. So uh, the charge ended up being 500 Oxycontins attempt to possess with the intent to distribute, hmm. which is the most bogus. How much time did you do? I got 57 months for that in federal prison. What would you say to kids that think that you're, you, you had an amazing lifestyle and they want to be like you? I buried 11 friends in one year carried their caskets from gunfights, from drugs, from 
shootouts from gang life. I watched my children get stripped from everything they had, live in houses, riddled with bed bugs, end up in foster care. I lost the mother of my kids, my wife of 10 years to a drug overdose. I've buried probably a hundred friends to drug overdoses. I've got a closet full of rest in peace t-shirts. You either die or you go to prison, period. It's one in a trillion that somebody really takes their money and goes and does something else with it and gets out, you know. It's a horrible life. There is a, a glamour to it, you know. There's there's a, a, a high to being in that life. But the higher you get, the harder you fall. And it's not worth it. You don't get to keep none of the money. You come home from prison, that money's gone. All that glitz and that glamour, anybody that's really been through it will not glorify it. Period. They won't. And if they do, it's they're a sucker. They're not ready to change it. I'd say 95% of the people that are caught up in that life is because they don't see another opportunity and they don't see, um, they, they feel like they don't have any other way. It wasn't until I went to prison this last time and I was like, I can't, I'm watching what my kids are going through. I'm watching what my family's going through. My whole life is, is just crumbling. Everything that I built for a name, are opiates still really bad in your community? Oh, around? terrible. It's horrible. I've I've been home from prison four years now. And if we sat here long enough, I could probably name 30 to 45 friends that I've lost to overdoses in the last three, four years from fentanyl. My wife, first night she came to stay with me when I got out of prison. She pops her bra off and she got a big bag of pills and a wad of money. I'm like... Like, this is a man that just been in prison five years selling drugs and and made all these changes and I'm coming home. And it was that reality that, like, the world ain't changed. Just because I've changed don't mean the world has. When you talk about all the people that you saw around you, all your friends uh, dying from overdoses, and you, you know that you had a part in that because you were selling For sure. drugs as well. How much of a responsibility do you feel? It's definitely a weight that I carried for a while. I've lost a handful of people before prison to overdoses. Way more since I've been home because the heroin and fentanyl crisis. I think I, I carried a lot, a big burden, a big heavy weight of guilt. Not just for the overdoses, but for friends of mine that were killed in drug deals or with gang violence. And I brought them to that organization, you know, um, I always felt terrible about it. So I know I know you say that you don't endorse the gangster life, and you've spoken a little bit about that. And you don't want to be, you don't want that to be an example for kids, your lifestyle. But at the same time, your image is sort of associated with that of an outlaw um, country rapper. So how do you? How do you work through these two? Well, if through you listen, if you, well, if you listen to the message in my songs, you know the only time you'll ever really hear me say anything about violence is like I'm gonna die for mine. You know, I don't talk about drugs. I don't talk about drug use in any of my songs. 
for the last 10 years. And, and that's why I'm not as big as I could be in the music, because you can't listen to struggle music, struggle Jennings music and be a bad father, be a drug addict for too much longer, be out there bullshitting without feeling bad. Even with that cleaner message, without the focus on that dealer high life, Struggle owns his own record label now, called Angels and Outlaws. He has a really broad fan base and a major social media following. I am a musician. I'm a professional recording artist. And it worked out. I'm making more money now than I ever made in the streets. Not cash, like, in hand money, but, you know, you gotta pay taxes on it now. <laughs> but, you know, I'm living a thousand times better than I've ever lived. Next time on the Trafficked Podcast with Mariana Van Zeller. I arrived one morning, and by the afternoon, I was already meeting with Manny Ramirez. Tony Bosch, the man at the center of perhaps the greatest steroid scandal in history. It was players everywhere, and I had to pay off the agents, I had to pay off the handlers, I had to pay off everything else. An estimated 4 million Americans a year use steroids and other performance-enhancing drugs. Tony was in the performance enhancement industry when things got really big. The business was, was making a lot of money, yes. Millions, yes. His story. Next time on The Traffic Podcast with Mariana Van Zeller. The Traffic Podcast with Mariana Van Zeller is a companion to the National Geographic TV series Trafficked and is produced for Nat Geo by Muck Media. Margaret Catcher is lead producer. Ted Woods is executive producer and audio engineer. Abby Spears is associate producer. And Paula Benson is line producer. Original music by Jeff Morrow. The Traffic TV series is available now on National Geographic. And new episodes air Wednesdays. Executive producers for Nat Geo are the awesome Chris Alberts, the amazing Bengt Anderson, and the fabulous Matt Renner. And from Muck Media, executive producers Jeff Blunkett, Darren Foster, and me, Mariana Van Zeller. Special thanks to Zoe Har, Todd Herman and Vilma Linares, Bonnie Stewart, and to Struggle Jennings. <laughs> <laughs>